0: Well, tonight uh, we're going to... It says uh, Daniel 2, 24-49, which is actually the end of the whole chapter, but we're not going to make it to the end of the chapter. As usual, sometimes things happen like that. Uh, Next week, what we're going to do is is, um, complete the chapter by actually enhancing the things we're going to learn tonight. So this is going to be kind of a general uh, lesson in... in, um, um, Daniel chapter two, especially in the interpretation of the dream that that Daniel is uh, uh, giving to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, but they have present implications. The dream itself has present implications because of the uh, kingdoms or, or empires that are mentioned that are also going to be mentioned later on in a different way in chapter 7 of Daniel. And uh, as, as you all should know, Daniel is, is uh, one, one of the great prophetic books of the Scriptures that point to a lot of what is happening in our day and time today, but more importantly is pointing us beyond that to the coming of, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a, it's a significant book and it is a very necessary book for us to understand a lot of the things that are going on today. Uh, the first uh, 23 verses of this uh, chapter uh, deals with th- the king having been given a, a dream. Obviously this dream came from God, the God of Israel. Giving a dream to the king of ne- uh, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan heathen king. But as the word of God teaches us, God sets up kings and He puts kings down. God is in control. Well, He gave this dream to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar really wanted to understand it. But uh, He tells his wise men in Babylon, He says, "Listen." I, you need to not only interpret this dream, you gotta tell me what the dream is. And if you don't do either of those two things, it's off with your heads. Well, he didn't say it that way, but, you know, execution is gonna come. And included in this group of wise men and astrologers and, and magicians and soothsayers and, and, and all of that would be these young men from he, from uh, Israel who Daniel, uh, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and, and Mishael—these uh, these these four young men who were trained over three years of time uh, in the language of the Chaldeans, which uh, of course is Ar- Aramaic, trained in the customs and the culture and the uh, the whole civilization of, of Babylon, for the purpose of tra- changing their whole ideas and and, and actually becoming more servants to Babylon and to the king uh, than for Israel. In other words, they were going to wipe out Israel from their mindset and the gods of Israel, or in this case, one god of Israel as always, but wipe out all of this stuff and, and begin to embrace the gods of the Babylonians. They even changed their names. Changed Daniel's name to Belteshazzar. Changed you know, Hananiah's name to Shadrachu. Uh, changed Mishael's name to uh, uh, Mishahu or Meshach and uh, and then James, Azariah's name to uh, uh, Abednego all dealing with their gods the god Aku and, uh, and so on and so forth but it didn't change their hearts but they were nonetheless going to have to be executed because that was what the king said go get them and just Execute him, because the main wise men of of, of uh, Babylon proved themselves to be charlatans. We can't do both. You give us a dream, we'll interpret it. We can't do both. But Daniel spoke to Arioch the uh, the. Uh, the man who was in charge, not only of these young men, but also given the, the, uh, uh, the calling to execute all these wise men. And Daniel spoke bravely to him. And uh, that's where we want to pick up here today, is that uh, Daniel said, no, wait a minute, don't, don't kill any more people. I can interpret the dream, but I can also tell you what the dream is. But I need time. The time was for him to wait upon the Lord, that the Lord God, who was in fact in control of Nebuchadnezzar, because he had given the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, was going to be the God who would speak to Daniel and give him what he needed. So we pick up in verse 24 of our text. And therefore Daniel went in unto Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon, He went and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. And then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen, and the interpretation thereof? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets, and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed what should come to pass hereafter. And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. I think we quickly focus upon Daniel's courage and compassion in this passage here. Because it's not every day that a young slave under a world power such as Babylon would speak with such authority and confidence to a man who was giving the task of, exec- or given the task of executing the wise men of that nation. And what he said was in fact contrary to the king's command. And Daniel's courage wasn't foolhardy either. He was confident that the Lord had spoken to him and revealed everything he needed to present to Nebuchadnezzar. Think about this. The courage of Daniel. Therefore Daniel went in unto Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had just given that order to destroy the wise men. But Daniel stood up and said, no, that's courage. But then he said, destroy not the wise men of Babylon. And that shows something else about Daniel. It showed his compassion. So equally significant to his courage was his compassion for those wise men of Babylon. Not only did he have courage and compassion, but he also had confidence in the Lord. Because he said very clearly, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Courage, compassion, confidence. Three things that we learn in the life of Daniel. Three things that we have learned in the life of Jesus. You see, there are those characteristics of self-denial and love of fellow man that are evident in his intercession for them and this compassion that we see here. It doesn't mean that Daniel was in favor of or even tolerant of their superstitions or their deceits or their witchcraft. He wasn't. He abhorred them because he knew his God abhorred them. But as a man of the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he showed a sincere concern for their well-being. I think that that clearly sets us apart as believers in Jesus Christ in a world that's gone mad. In a world that's gone that's become so chaotic. I mean man doesn't know what to say anymore. The devil has so fooled so many people. We have our own country, you know, to look at as a as a as a model of 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 what uh Not only what Satan has done to confuse the unbeliever, but we have a great model of of those who who refuse to to follow every wind of doctrine and stand on the Word of God. I'm thankful for you all here tonight for being here uh, on this night when so many other things could be done. We're here because we love God's Word. We love our country enough that we pray for it every day. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then will I hear from heaven. I will, heal their sin, heal, uh, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Something we should always remember. But it's such a confusing thing today. People don't know whether they're coming or going spiritually, religiously, politically. It's just, it's just a mess, isn't it? But here's that example being lived out by believers in Jesus Christ today. We don't love the sin of, 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 of those that we live around, but we don't kill them because they don't believe like us. Sound familiar? Instead, we love them. We pray for them. We show them what Jesus is all about. And folks, I can tell you this. I I got saved during the the Jesus movement back in the very early 70s. and, 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 And to this day, I'll never forget that that was one lesson I learned. The lesson was we need to let people know who Jesus really is. And we can't stop doing that. And Daniel really knew who his God was. And he realized he was in that situation, having followed through himself, not so much the sinner, but, you know, in the captivity of, of the sins of his own people there in, 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 in Babylon. And still he had enough heart and compassion. You know he didn't say save me Lord. He stands in be, on behalf of God. And he says. No more killing of these wise men. Not that he believed what they believed. But he stood on what God. His God. Would do. Now, Ariok, the man that he was talking to, was obviously looking for a good reward from his king when he announced that as he takes Daniel to his king, he announces that he found a man. (laughs) Right? That's exactly what it says. I found a man from among the captivity of Israel. I found him. A man of the captives of Judah who could interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In fact, it was Daniel who went to Arioch. Remember that. Daniel went to him. <laughs> he didn't find him. Daniel found him. Daniel, of course, refused to take credit, didn't he? Instead, he gave all the glory to the Lord who had revealed the dream to him. All the glory must go to the Lord. Always, at all times. Another aspect of Daniel's courage is seen in his response to the king's questions. Daniel makes sure that the king understands that none of the wise men in all the land were able to make known the dreams of the king, even its interpretation. It becomes very clear immediately that Daniel is not providing the dream and the interpretation for his own glory or for his own reputation. He is comparing the king's wise men to the true and living God who is able to reveal dreams. So, your wise men, your soothsayers, your magicians, your Chaldeans, all these people, they can't do it, but my God can. And He's true, and He's alive. And He's only one. God is to get all the credit, and hence all the glory. Now, in verses 29 and 30, Daniel asserted at the outset that the king's dream was prophetic. His dream would cover the prophetic panorama of Gentile history from his time until the impending overthrow of the Gentile powers to Israel's Messiah. Which is the time spoken of, or the time period spoken of by Jesus in Luke 21, verse 24, where Jesus said, "...they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles." Now he's speaking of his own people, he's speaking of "...the Jews." At a certain time, that is yet to happen. If we understand Matthew 24, Luke 21, and and Mark 13. But Jesus said, "...they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled." So from Nebuchadnezzar's time to the time that is yet to happen... That is a time period that uh, Daniel is going to be revealing to Nebuchadnezzar from his dream. So this dream was given to Nebuchadnezzar who was the first of many Gentile rulers who would exert power by divine appointment during the time of the Gentiles. Nebuchadnezzar would eagerly understand the dream simply because God wasn't revealing spiritual truths as much as He was revealing facts concerning the political dominion that Gentiles would exercise so, so once again, Daniel humbles himself. He humbly affirms that the mystery was not revealed to him because he was wiser than others, but to make known to the king the desires of his heart. Making known to the king the desires of the king's heart. That's the point. True humility, you see, is not conscious of its own greatness. If you write anything down, write that. True humility is not conscious of its own greatness. James chapter 4 verse 6 says, But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think that's a lesson that we as Christians have to learn every day. Or at least that we need to keep in the forefront of 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 our lives and our ministries every day. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There's nothing that a believer has of himself that he can be proud of. I think think I've said this a million times if I've said it once. But the only thing that we can boast in is our sin. And that's not much to boast in. In verse 10 of the same chapter, James says, Humble yourselves then in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. You humble yourself, He lifts you up. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. So we get to Daniel's description of the dream. Now in verse uh, in verse 31. So Daniel is standing now before Nebuchadnezzar. Didn't want you to miss that. I kind of read the first few verses kind of quick.
1: Daniel two thirty one
0: says, You, O King, were watching. This is the dream. As soon as he begins to speak, Nebuchadnezzar realizes it's exactly what I was doing. Wherever he was in the dream, he was watching. He was looking. And behold a great image, this this great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its form was awesome. In other words, it was too great to describe it with words. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs or sides of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. You know about the threshing floors of of that time. They were actually, in in some cases, just holes, big holes in the ground, kind of. They would uh, rock them in a little bit, but that's where they would bring the the, the wheat and the you know the uh, the, uh, the harvest of of wheat and all, and they would just throw it in there. And uh, after they took it off of the stalks, and then uh, they would crush it so that they would the, the you know the outer shell of the wheat would uh, would would be loosened, and then they would just go through this with with these big uh, rakes, and they would throw it up in the air, and the wind would catch the chaff and and blow it out of the way and what would fall to the ground would be the, would be the, the, the meat of the, of the wheat as it were so that's the description he gives the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver the gold were crushed together and became like chaff they were just blown away from the, from the summer threshing floors the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth I'll talk more about that next time, but let me, let me just say that I think most of us know that the, the stone that was cut out without hands represents the Messiah. And to some extent, it's kind of interesting, but to some extent the, the idea behind that was that it, w- it was cut. That, you know, he's, he's seeing this, this vision. Where, where would this rock be but on the earth? But nothing on earth could cut that rock. Only God. So there's a hint in that description. I'll talk a little bit more about it again next week. But there's a hint in that description of the incarnation. Of Jesus. Coming and taking upon himself flesh. we'll talk about that later. The king's dream was relatively simple then. He saw a huge multi-metallic image standing before him. His head was was made of gold. His chest and arms were made out of silver. The the belly and thighs were of bronze. And it had legs of iron. And its feet were made of iron and clay. Images of this nature and type were very much liked by the Chaldeans. The the Babylonians. They, They liked this kind of stuff. You know, they liked statues. As many of the statues as they could build, they, they, they made them, you know. But the image was fitting for another reason. Because Nebuchadnezzar received here a view of the entire time of the Gentiles or as Paul called it in Romans eleven twenty five, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So, the fullness of the Gentiles, the time of the Gentiles. Again, very, very similar language would be the completion of their time. The fullness of the Gentiles be come in. In other words... When this, this, this time period ends, that's the salvation of Israel. Read it in, in Romans chapter 11. But getting back to the dream, Daniel then described another element to the, to the dream. Nebuchadnezzar was watching while suddenly that stone that was not cut with human hands struck the image in the feet and the whole structure tumbled down. So, getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, then, when we think that if we get to the end of the the time of the end of the the Gentiles, and it is yet future, then it is certainly representing the second coming of Jesus Christ to crush all world powers or power, as it were, at, at at that coming time. So, this whole structure will tumble down as it was crushed in pieces. The wind. Blew it away like the chaff from the summer threshing floors. I mentioned, which is an apt description of the kingdoms of the world, as different as they may be from one another, as different as the head of gold, the the uh, you know the chest and arms of bronze, uh, I should say, of silver, and the uh, you know the, the 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 torso of bronze, and then the legs of of, of iron, and, and so on and so forth. As different, as they may be from one another. They are never they they are nevertheless essentially the same, aren't they? They're essentially the same. All world powers of this magnitude, when it comes right down to it, with all of their pride, with all of their splendor, are only reflections of the one ungodly, humanistic, and Christ-hating world, inspired by the one evil spirit of the God of this age, seen in the serpent of the garden in chapter 3 of Genesis, and in the wickedness of the builders of the Tower of Babel. Chasing after happiness outside of God and having the same future. What it comes right down to is it doesn't matter how great and how powerful your kingdom is. Any kingdom outside of the kingdom of God is going to be dealt with. So from the gold to the clay, all are crushed by the stone that became a mighty mountain that would fill the whole earth. The mountain, of course, as we described it when we were dealing with uh, the issues of, of uh, the book of Revelation and, and the uh, mystery Babylon in chapters 18 and 19 of Revelation, and we talk about mountains, of course, being kingdoms. This talks about one mountain, one mighty kingdom, the kingdom of of our Lord, and of our God." So that was the dream. That was the dream, essentially, simple, the interpretation, very clear, in the sense of what things were. And we don't see the king challenging it, and so the interpretation or at least the the description of it must must have been right. So Daniel was safe. He gave him the dream that he said had left him. But now comes the interpretation. This is where things get a little bit, uh, not more difficult, but uh, just a little more complex as it were. He says, this is the dream, verse 36 of our text. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. So Daniel says to him, look, I have just told you what the dream is. Is it right, sir? It is. Okay. Well, let's go on then. Here's the interpretation then. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, the fowls of the heaven, hath has he given into thine hand, and has made thee the ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. Now, I, I wonder, having some idea, some sense of, of the pride that Nebuchadnezzar had of himself, as being the king of this mighty empire that had just defeated the Assyrians and and earlier on had defeated the Egyptians. And so they had all of this land from Egypt all the way through the the fertile crescent over into the areas of of what is today Iraq and Iran and, uh, and all of that. Large piece of land. That when he is told, you are a king of kings... And then later told, you're the head of gold. That, that must have made him feel really good. Except for one thing. In the middle of it all, and he might not have really heard it, but I think he did, but he probably just didn't want to put, put it out in front, was that, he, that, that, <laughs> that Daniel said, you're, you're a king of kings. Because the God of heaven has given thee. In other words, you're not God. But my God has given you kingdom and power and strength. Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. Because of who Nebuchadnezzar was, then the head of gold is representing the Babylonian kingdom. So Daniel's interpretation made it clear that the, the image revealed the course of Gentile kingdoms which in turn would rule over the land and people of Israel. Now too many people that write commentaries and all over the last maybe 150 years or so and even in, our, in, in the last uh, 40, 50 years have, have used the term Palestine. Well, Palestine didn't exist in that time. And because Israel had uh, gone into captivity in in Assyria, and Judah had gone into captivity in Babylon, they weren't in the land, but the land is still the land. So when I mention the land, I'm going to call it Israel, okay, just so you'll know. Because it was given to Israel. Nebuchadnezzar, head of the Babylonian Empire, was represented by the head of gold. And and while his father may have come to power in Babylon by military conquest, he received his dominion and his power and his strength and his glory from the God of heaven who sets up kings and deposes them. That's what we learn back in verse 21 of this chapter. It is our God who sets up kings and it is our God who deposes them. Nebuchadnezzar's rule was viewed as a worldwide empire In which he ruled over all mankind as well as over all beasts and birds. To some extent he was helping fulfill something that God has said to man. I give a new dominion. Over the beasts of the field. Over the birds of the air. Interestingly enough at the time of creation the right to rule over the earth was given to man. Who was to have the dominion over it and all the creatures that were in it. And then, he, and then what does he hear? He hears those words, you're the head of gold. He was indeed the supreme authority in the world of his day. This was even confirmed by Jeremiah in his warnings to the kings of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon. He had written in Jeremiah 27, verses 6 and 7, and now have I given all these lands... Of course, he's, he's, he's speaking for God. God is saying, now I've given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, notice. And the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him. And all nations shall serve him, and his son, and his son's son, until the very time of his land come. And then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. Which again, fits the pattern of the dream. There's the Babylonian kingdom as the head. We'll see who the, you know, the chest and arms of, of silver will be, and then so on and so forth. But each one, after one kingdom weakens and, and uh, is taken over, comes another kingdom, you see. And while the extent of, of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was not as great as those that followed him, he exercised absolute control as no one after him did. Uh, and I think this is another significant thing that we'll, we may talk about a little bit more next time. But... Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, his word was law, and if he changed it, it was law. But he was the absolute authority. Keep that in mind. That is very similar to the attitude and the, uh, uh, and the heart attitude, I should say, of, of, uh, of Antichrist. And if you consider Antichrist and Lucifer from Isaiah 14, you know the the, the four uh, or the five eye wills of, of Lucifer. You know I will ascend into the the, the, the the place of the Most High and sit on the throne, and I will. Uh, you know it was an I will, I will, I will. Lucifer had an I problem. What Antichrist shows of himself in the book of Revelation, as we studied it not too long ago, was his desire for that absolute control. How many kings who had that kind of control thought of themselves as gods? But here's another indication of Daniel's courage. To tell the most powerful ruler of his time that he was responsible to the God of Israel. The God of heaven. The one true and living God. When Daniel spoke those words, Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar understood who he was speaking of. He wasn't speaking of any of his gods or any other gods. And then he knew right then and there that Daniel had not given up his God through the three years of, of that uh, intense um, training that he received. But the truth was that God had given him, Nebuchadnezzar, God had given him sovereignty, symbolized by the head of the statue, sovereignty. Sovereignty. He had also given him power, the weight of the head of gold. In terms of weight between the, the head, the, the silver, the bronze, and, 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 the, and the iron, the gold was, was weightier. As far as strength, it is the association of the head on the body. The body has no strength without the head being alive and connected to it. You cut off the head, the body's dead. And I didn't say that to make it rhyme. It just happened. <laughs> but then glory. Look at the four things: Sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Glory, glory, glory. It's value in gold. Or as gold, I should say. It's value is gold. To one ruler Nebuchadnezzar Now, Nebuchadnezzar ruled some 45 years he ruled from about 605 to 560 BC and, and his empire would only last another 21 years his father Nabopolassar founded the Neo-Babylonian Empire in 627 BC and it fell to the Persians in 539 so it existed this Babylonian Empire existed for only About 88 years, give or take a year. But the kingdom was an absolute monarchy from Egypt to the Persian Gulf. That was the extent of that world power. But then in Daniel 2, verses 39 through 43, it says, After thee shall arise another kingdom. Now that's a very important statement too. After thee, after you, you are the kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of your absolute monarchy, you are the kingdom. So after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. That's essential for us to understand. Inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass. So there's two kingdoms mentioned in this verse which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. For as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. In other words, iron is, is you know, when it's made right, produced right, it, it can break, it can, it can uh, break in pieces things, it can, it can bruise, as it were. It can hurt, in other words. It can destroy and uh, whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the, the kingdom shall be divided. And these are all things that we are going to cover next week in, in more detail. But right now we're just doing the general overview. Uh, but there shall be in it uh, of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. I will definitely deal with that next time. But they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed. With clay. So going back to verse 39, let's look at the chest and arms of silver because that is the Medo Persian Empire. The Medo Persian Empire. The second portion of the statue, this, the chest and the arms of silver, represented the rise of the Medes and the Persians. So these were actually two tribes, as it were, that, that combined. To conquer the Babylonians in 539 B.C. I'm not going to give a lot of detail because a lot of what we read from here on in the book of Daniel brings us to these particular uh, nations or kingdoms. Uh, you've all heard of Cyrus, the king, uh, Darius or D- Darius as some people call him. Uh, these were the Medo-Persians. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see them as we get to uh, certain chapters in the book of Daniel. Daniel actually lives a long, long time and serves these other these other kings, as it were. But uh, the arms of silver evidently represent the two nations of Medea and Persia that together defeated Babylon, as I mentioned already. And and, all, and although the kingdom lasted over 200 years, now remember the Babylonian kingdom was 88 years. Medo-Persia lasted over 200 years actually some 208 years from 539 to 331 BC and, and and longer than the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire was inferior nonetheless, it was inferior to the Babylonian Empire as silver is compared to gold Babylon was, was represented by gold Medo-Persia as silver in today's, even in today's value, I mean gold is much more precious than silver. Always has been, actually. One way that it was inferior, as far as the Medo-Persians, was that its monarchs, in other words, it was a different governmental system. Whereas Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold, he, he, I mean, he was his word was everything. His word was law. But Medo-Persia was, was ruled by monarchs Uh, I don't want to go into great detail about it, because there's a lot of uh, uh, kind of confusing things there, so we can maybe touch on it a little bit next time. But uh, its monarchs could not... uh, For example, its monarchs, the group of leaders, could not annul a law once it went into effect. As evident in the account of Daniel in the lion's den in chapter 6. Darius the king could not change the law once it was in effect. That's why he was all sad. Oh man, I, I wish I could change the law. But Daniel, you know, he was tricked uh, you know, into believing what some of his other leaders or satraps were were saying. We'll see that when we get to chapter 6 if we ever get out of chapter 2. So that, so that was uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. Just... Just basically covering it essentially uh, uh, on a very general basis. Because the next one on the, in verse uh, 39 is now the belly and thighs are the sides of bronze or brass. And that would represent the Grecian or Macedonian Empire. And I mention Macedonian because in fact uh, Alexander the Great was Macedonian, not really Greek. Uh, so, and, and we can talk about the distinctions later, but... Uh, I think in I think in the in the book of Revelation we were talking about, uh, you know, the the conflict that um, uh, we have prophetically today when we talk about east and west. And 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 my looking at the scriptures from that standpoint that we've emphasized the west too much, and forgotten that on the in the east is where much of the trouble is. Uh, in the East, uh, in in the sense of, you know, Islam being as powerful as it is today than it was 50, 60 years ago when we were hearing, you know, prophecies from Hal Lindsey and others, you know, know, that uh, everything was pointing to the Western uh, uh, revived Roman Empire. Everything's in Rome. Europe is going to do this and this and this. Europe is essentially just weakened completely because of Islam. And Islam has become that eastern, you know, world power. It, we went through a lot of weeks on it, so I'm not going to explain it today. But uh, Macedonian is more eastern than it is western. And that's the point. And I, and I, I think just want you to keep, keep that thought in mind. I will deal with that as we get more into the book of, of Daniel. Uh, so the third, uh, king, uh, the third kingdom mentioned then in verse 39 is that Grecian or Macedonian empire that rose up under the leadership of Alexander the Great who conquered the Medo-Persians around 331 B.C. Now the, the Grecian Empire, the Macedonian Empire was in control uh, in the area of Egypt, parts of what is today Europe and then eastward to India. Its kingdom lasted even longer than the Medo-Persians. It lasted about 300 years. Yet it was weaker than the Medo-Persians, and the Babylonians. Again, bronze is not a precious metal like silver or gold. But something happened at a young age for Alexander. He died. He died in 323 B.C. From all indications, historically, you know, he kind of drank himself to death, as as the story goes. Could have been different. But uh, from that point, the empire that we're dealing with here, the uh, the, the Macedonian or Greek Empire, split into four parts, and each of Alexander's generals took one portion. I think you'll notice in that in this respect how different the governments are of each of these of each of these kingdoms. Again, Babylon, one man; Medo-Persia, a group of monarchs; and now. in in this Greek Macedonian uh, uh, kingdom uh, there's a series of of leaders. Antipater ruled Macedon, Greece. Lysimachus uh, governed uh, Thrace and Asia Minor. Uh, Seleucus governed uh, Asia and Ptolemy reigned over Egypt, Cyrenaica and the area that we know as Israel. And so Greece lacked the unified strength of Medo-Persia and of Babylonia or Babylon. Its democratic form of government gave more to the people and less to the rulers. The two thighs of the statue represented the two major divisions of the Greek empire, its eastern and its western sections and this would become actually very significant when we get to the Roman Empire because the legs of iron which is next which is the next part verses 40 through uh, 43 the legs of iron is the Roman Empire the Roman Empire became a power in 63 BC much much later before then it was just uh, kind of a little group of misfits, I suppose, They're just kind of developed into a city-state and then later on into a, a nation. But the Roman Empire became a power in 63 B.C. Rome swallowed up the lands, its peoples, that had been part of three pe- previous empires and assimilated them into itself. The empires that we already talked about, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. The kingdom was divided and thus the two legs. The Western Kingdom, with its capital in Rome, lasted some 500 years. And the Eastern Kingdom, with its capital in Constantinople, lasted until around 1453 A.D. So, 1,400 years after the birth of of Christ on this earth. In terms of absolute authority, Rome was an inferior power. Yes, they had the Caesars. But how many times do we, you know, we read in history uh, all of the things that go on with the Caesars and you can read Shakespeare and Julius Caesar and all that kind of stuff and realize that they were just inferior no matter whether they thought themselves to be gods or not. Because the people in the Senate played major roles in setting its policies. And they controlled the emperors more than had been true in the preceding empires in the dream. So, anyway, Daniel did give an extended explanation of the fourth kingdom. There in verses 40 to 43, the, the chief feature of the feet is that there were two materials that composed them, and these two materials do not adhere well to one another. Iron and clay. They don't really mix very well. Whereas the dream used metals to describe the kingdoms previously, now it referred to clay. Perhaps a uh, kiln-fired clay, some kind of clay that's fired and and hardened, but still mixed with iron. Uh, They don't work together too well. The final form of the fourth kingdom, though not identified as a fifth kingdom, would not have the cohesiveness that the earlier kingdoms possessed. But that's where we're going to continue from this point next time leaving you hanging just a little bit because then we have to go to one, you know, one point at a time to show the, the strength of, of this dream to what is yet to come. How do these things relate to our day and time? How do they relate to the coming of Jesus Christ? Because that's what eventually is going to happen. And how does it relate to the nation of Israel? Again, these are things we're going to cover next week to close out the chapter. But let me close out tonight by reading verses 44 and 45. Uh, just, just reading them to you as part of our reading tonight. It says, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Think about that for just a moment. The kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it, the kingdom of God, shall stand forever. You see, the kingdom of God is not about us making our demands. It's not about us making our democratic uh, uh, pitches for you know mayors and senators and governors and presidents and all of that. All that is, 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 is man centered. It's it's you know unless we truly seek the face of the Lord about it, you know, most likely the the governments of men, no matter in what state they are, though it could be, you know, uh, socialistic or democratic or republican or whatever, uh, still doesn't stand. But the kingdom of God will stand. In spite of what man tries to do, and though we live in a nation that you know where we we're given the the privilege of voting and the, and, and and the right to do a lot of things, we're in a mess today. This this whole thing happening in Ferguson, I, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about that tomorrow. But uh, tomorrow morning at eight, you have to be here at eight. Uh, try to wake up early so you can get here. So you don't fall asleep while I'm talking, but. Uh, But, you know, when you see these things happening, you realize that man doesn't have the power. But God does. Why these things are allowed to happen, we know. More and more, they happen because it's a sign that says, listen, I have told you, I've told you, I've warned you, Jesus is coming and you need to be ready for that. In the last days, perilous times will come. Well, if this isn't the last days, I don't know what is or when it is. Verse 45 says, For as much... Oops, let's finish verse 44. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever... For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountains without hands and that it brake in pieces the iron, notice the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. God is telling Nebuchadnezzar, I'm telling you what's coming. And the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof, sure. Much of history already has confirmed all of these things. So if it has confirmed all of these things, then what are we doing? What are we doing with what we know? That's the question we need to ask ourselves in the 21st century. Because God has given so much of His truths, so much of His mercies, His grace throughout the centuries in the knowledge of of the person and work of Jesus Christ. But what has man done with it? What is man doing with it today? This is why we cannot stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why we cannot stop examining the word of God and seeing where we are in light of the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In light of the truths of the word of God seeing how it all lines up. It's, it, it is lined up from Genesis to Revelation. There's nothing that, that God hasn't done to make, make it clear that, there, that everything is in line and the Word is reliable. To the very jot and tittle of, 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 the, of, the, of the Hebrew language, the dots over the eyes, the, the crossing of every T in the Greek language in any language, the Word of God has made it clear. Though we're looking forward to that time of the Gentiles being fulfilled, we live today in what is called the Day of Grace. The time of God's grace. And for 2,000 years, Jesus has been preached. Where would we be had we not responded to the Gospel of Jesus Christ? To know Him, to know his love and grace. And how many more. Need to know that. How many more today. Will perish. Because they refused. The gospel. So it it affects us. What we are looking at today. Though it might be a a kind of a brief history lesson. Nonetheless. it, It reminds us that God's word is true. Reliable accurate and we can stand on it let's pray father thank you for bringing us together one more time this week and of course tomorrow morning we look forward once again to come and give thanks to you for life for breath lord for strength in our times of weakness for encouragement in our times of struggle, when we struggle with with the afflictions of this life. How, How blessed we are, Lord God, to have so many who are good examples of faithfulness and endurance and perseverance in the midst of all of these things. Lord, bless uh, our, our way home this evening, whatever direction we go. And be, Lord God, with, with those who are hurting, Lord, this, this week. I especially pray for Rosemary Obeda's family at, at the death of her son-in-law, who was killed in that motorcycle accident this week and this past week. And um, realize how difficult it will be for them tomorrow. But I also thank you, Lord God, for people like Lorreen Ryan, who been sitting by her husband, Dick's bedside for so long, and yet trusting every, every day in you, Lord for the strength that she needs. So, Father, we we do thank you. We do, Lord, take this opportunity to, to be grateful for what you have indeed given us. We are rich. We indeed are rich in your love and grace. Keep us, Lord ever faithful in the things you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.